You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning, everyone. Really, really good to be here and not have been here all night before being here, if you know what I mean. Those of you from the ranch know what I mean. Uh, Yesterday, um, late in the afternoon, pretty much, uh, John was talking about it this morning. We had a fire, another fire, up on the ranch, apparently lightning strike from Thursday sometime, hit a big ponderosa, and it took off yesterday. And uh, after just a few hours of working on it, the fire crews and the helicopter which I didn't think we had that much water in that little pond, you know. Uh, they, they, they drew water right out of a pond just above our house there and uh, kept dropping it on it back and forth, back and forth. Uh, God is good and we are so blessed that uh, we are able to be, uh, able to have stayed there, not have to evacuate yesterday. But it is good to be here with all of you. And uh, please turn to the Gospel of John chapter 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3. So how many of you have noticed the changes in United States paper currency over the past few years? Anybody seen that? Compared to some other countries' currency, it's still pretty tame, but it seems to me to be looking weirder and weirder all the time. There is, however, a method to this madness. Counterfeit bills are becoming more common and more difficult to distinguish from real bills. In 2011... Over $261 million in counterfeit money was removed from circulation in the United States. That's just one year, and that's certainly not all of the counterfeit money that is out there. Here's the problem. Which of these bills is real, and which is fake? How many of you think the top one's real? Okay. How many of you think the top one's real? How many of you think the bottom one's real? Yeah. A lot of non-committal here. Okay, that's all right, too. That's okay. Now, you see them side by side, and you might stand a, a more of a chance of determining which is which, but each one, just taken on its own, looks pretty good. So how do you tell? By the way, it is the top one. Yeah, you might notice the... Uh, the uh, um, it's hard, kind of hard to see. It's easier to see on the back screen, actually. The uh, dark shadows on the forehead and face of uh, Mr. Hamilton here uh, indicate that that's not quite the way it ought to be. And uh, hopefully these two were scanned at the the same time. And it's hard even to tell from this picture. There's not really enough detail. You might also notice they're on the same plane here. And you'll see that this color here is not exactly like this color here. And we'll get to that here in just a minute. Okay? There are at least eight different things that you can look for to determine whether a bill is real or counterfeit. Starting in 1996, on $5 bills and larger, the denomination in the bottom right corner shifts color from copper to green, depending on the angle from which you view it. Okay, and that's supposed to uh, show up here that this is copper and this is green. Not a, not a great picture, I understand that. Okay, on the newest $100 bills, in the same kind of technique here, uh, the inkwell that's on the uh, face of it there, uh, has a bell in it that shifts color in the same way, green or copper. Second way, all authentic U.S. bills have raised printing on them. 
Run your fingernail across the lines on the bill and you should feel a slightly bumpy surface. I didn't know that until I was researching that here. Most counterfeiting techniques are unable to make, this is the third way, are unable to make the printing as sharp and clear as that on real bills. And you look at this, and assuming that our projector is focused well, you see how sharp these lines are here, and especially, and going along with that, this microprinting that runs down uh, President Grant's collar there, the United States of America, it says there, that's very difficult to duplicate so that it's legible. Okay. Uh, in genuine bills, uh, you find tiny red and blue threads. Here's blue threads here. There's a red one down here. It's a little out of focus. Uh, but you can see all these little blue ones all scattered throughout here. Okay? Uh, they're actually woven into the paper on which the bill is printed. Counterfeiters sometimes try to duplicate that appearance by printing little red and blue marks on their bills. Uh, but you can tell they're not actually part of the paper. Then there's this method. Uh, there will be a watermark on genuine bills, depending on the date range in which they were made. There's either, either an oval area. It's always on the front of the, uh, from the front of the bill. It's always seen on the right, by the way. There's either an oval area or a replica of the face that is printed on the bill. These watermarks should only be visible when the bill is held so that light shines through it. That one is backlit, so you can see uh, the face there. And they are visible from both sides. Uh, of the bill. No matter which side you hold up to the light, you can see that. Now, uh, both of these $100 bills have a watermark. Very cool. Okay, there's the watermark and there's the watermark. See anything wrong with one of those? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, Abraham Lincoln there. How did he get on there? Well, here's what they do. Sometimes counterfeiters will take a lower denomination bill, like a five, and they'll bleach all the ink off of it. And then they'll use that paper, and it'll still have the watermark in it, they'll use that paper to print a higher denomination bill over it. But when you hold up the watermark and the faces don't match, you know you have a problem there. Down here we have uh, Benjamin Franklin in both spots, and so at least it stands a better chance of being genuine there. Now, uh, there's this security strip... Uh, is, is an example. It, even if they have the watermark and have all these other things, this is a tough one. Uh, counterfeits will usually fail this one. Every genuine bill has a security strip with the letters USA followed by the bill's denomination on it. And for 1s through 20s, the denomination is spelled out in letters, while 50s and 100s use numbers. Uh, these strips are embedded in the paper. They're not on the surface, they're actually embedded into the paper. Most are visible when held up to, uh, excuse me, they are most visible when held up to the light. And the strips are positioned differently for each denomination. You can see the various positions there on the, on the different bills. Here's the thing, those colors, the strips for each denomination glow a different color when exposed to ultraviolet light. So you hold them under a black light and that strip will glow and it'll glow a different color depending on which one of those you have. And I'm not too familiar with that purple thing there. But anyway, okay, we'll move on. Now, the newest $100 bills have an extra security feature. Uh, there's a visible blue security ribbon that goes down the right middle of the bill. And it's 3D. Okay? If you move it back and forth, you know those things we used to get when we were kids out of the Cracker Jack box and they're kind of grainy plastic and you look at it one way and turn it and it looked like something was shifting around in there? Well, this is similar, I guess, to that. If you move this back and forth, you'll actually see the number 100 and the little bells 
that are between the hundreds there moving from side to side as the bill shifts. Very, very cool. And finally, uh, the serial number for each bill is printed on the bill twice. You'll see the lower right corner there. There's also one in the upper left. And the numbers must match each other. You, there actually are counterfeits out there where the two numbers don't match. Uh, but they, and they must be squarely oriented on the bill. They can't be running uphill or downhill. They're just kind of haphazard. Starting in 1996, bills for all denominations other than $1 or $2, because it's not cost-effective to counterfeit $1 and $2 bills. Matter of fact, I read one thing that said to, uh, for a successful counterfeiting to uh, produce a $100 bill, just one, may cost as much as $50 to get to that point. So, uh, yeah, you're taking a pretty big chance for getting in a lot of trouble for a small profit. But anyway, um, uh, bills for all denominations other than $1 or $2 have two letters at the beginning of the serial number like this does. This one just happens to be my initials. That ought to be mine, right? Belong to me. Uh, the first letter must also match the series year in which it was printed. Uh, this has it here. Sometimes the series year is printed over on this side. Uh, but the letter... And the series here have to go together. Okay. Well, as I ask so many times, and I'm sure you do too, why am I telling you all this? Well, this isn't even really mostly what the message is about, but it's the beginning of how we get there. Okay? Um, it's important to determine what the genuine article is. Would you agree with that? Okay? Uh, if you've ever seen a knockoff watch or uh, article of clothing or handbag or shoes or, you know, whatever, uh, diamonds, fake diamonds or other jewelry, uh, determining that something is genuine and which one is genuine is pretty important. And so that's how this passage begins. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, there's some confusion about Jesus and John the Baptist. Which one was actually the Messiah. Was there really any difference between them? Did it matter which one you followed? For people in that time, seeing both of them on the scene together, they were faced with this confusion. And in today's message, we're going to look at the final words of John the Baptist in John's Gospel. We're going to see the last things that he had to say about anything in this Gospel, but it's all about Jesus. And as we look at that, we will also find a principle about Jesus that was true for John the Baptist, and it ought to be true for everyone who claims to be a Christian. And so let's begin by reading John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Remember last week we spoke about Jesus talking to Nicodemus and they had the whole conversation and it was around the Passover time and they were in Jerusalem. Well, this picks up on the tail end of that and it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Selim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, when it says in verse 22 that Jesus was spending time with his disciples and baptizing, it probably means that Jesus' disciples were baptizing under the authority and direction of Jesus. When we get to chapter 4, verse 2, next week, we'll see that Jesus himself did not baptize. And we will talk a little bit about the significance of that statement next week. 
But more importantly, this verse raises questions that we can't answer. Why? Why were Jesus' disciples baptizing? Was it the same baptism of repentance that John the Baptist practiced? Did Jesus' disciples use the opportunity of those baptisms to point out that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, like John the Baptist did? These are all good questions, but there aren't any definite answers. But I don't think we would be far off the mark to say that at least for a time, Jesus and his disciples picked up where John the Baptist would be forced to leave off in the near future. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. John the Baptist continued his ministry, and there were still those who followed him instead of following Jesus. You'll remember from earlier in the, in the book that uh, some of John's disciples left him. And he, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they left John and started to follow Jesus. But there were still some who were following John. Verse 23 spells out that John was baptizing in a certain place because there was much water there. I mean, these two things are directly associated with each other. Now, that makes us think, I hope. There are a couple different things that are used today that, uh, that pass for baptism. Uh, sprinkling, for example. Sprinkling doesn't take much water. Pouring. Pouring doesn't take much water, right? Uh, but it says here that John the Baptist was baptizing in a place where there was much water. I think that's significant, there was much water required for John's baptism. And that's because, and you've probably heard many times before, but I don't mind going over it again. The Greek word, baptizo, it's used for a variety of things, but they all involve some form of being covered. The word means to plunge, or to dip, or to immerse, or to submerge. They're all meanings of this word that has just been transliterated into English we get the word baptize from the Greek word baptizo. They took the Greek letter, substituted the corresponding sounding English letter, and called it good. In water baptism, as it was practiced in the New Testament, the person is submerged, plunged, dipped, or immersed. And that requires much water. And so we find the significance of that statement there. Now I said we were going to talk about this more here in a minute, and so this is where we're going to talk about it. Verse 24 mentions an event that John the Gospel writer never relates in this book. He alludes to it here. That's all we get. There's nothing more about it. You can find the account in Matthew chapter 14, if you want to look it up on your own. Or you can look in Mark chapter 6. It's also there. There's a brief mention in Luke chapter 3. But here's the situation that was referred to in verse 24 when he says, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Here's what happened. Okay? Um, Herod Antipas, one of the family of Herod, uh, had John the Baptist imprisoned because John was very outspoken about Herod's immorality. And if you think about it and do any studying about it, the word immorality and the family name of Herod are practically synonymous. You would be hard-pressed to find any good examples of moral conduct among any of the families of the Herods. In this case, Herod Antipas had visited his half-brother, Herod Philip, at some point. And Herod Antipas became enamored of Philip's wife, Herodias. Uh, and she has that name. You say, well, how did she get that name? I mean, she's his wife. I understand Herod Philip, but now she's... Well, uh, Herodias happened to be Philip's niece. 
as well as his wife, you know, which makes her some lesser blood relation to Herod Antipas as well. Anyway, Herod Antipas divorced his own wife, and Herodias divorced Philip, and Herod Antipas married Herodias. John the Baptist rightly called this unlawful. They're supposed to be Jewish leaders. They're supposed to be upholding the Jewish law and the Jewish covenants, and they weren't doing it. So John the Baptist was very outspoken about calling this uh, marriage unlawful. And so Herod Antipas had John arrested. He didn't like anybody talking about him like that. And yet, and yet he was still intrigued by John the Baptist and a little bit afraid of him, I think. Uh, And and so he would listen to him sometimes and, and go to hear him speak. But on the occasion of Herod's birthday, Herodias used her daughter Salome, not Herod Antipas's daughter also, this would be his stepdaughter. She used Salome to manipulate Herod into having John the Baptist beheaded. John, the gospel writer, doesn't cover all that in his gospel. We have to get that from the other gospels and from other history accounts written about the time. But that was, uh, that, that's what's going to happen to John the Baptist. And so what we see here, John's words here, these are his last words in the gospel of John. Let's move on to verse 25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. <clears throat> and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the, the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must increase decrease. Now we don't know what prompted this discussion uh, that's mentioned in verse 25 except that it had to do with purification. Another translation might say ceremonial washing. Remember at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee the water that Jesus turned into wine was in those water pots, those stone water pots, huge, holding 20 or 30 gallons each, uh, that was used, the water was used for purification, uh, that ritual. So uh, this discussion was about that. And it may be that since there were now two groups of people in Judea, John and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, who were practicing baptism for spiritual purposes, that this discussion arose as a debate about the exact nature of this baptism and its purpose. But as a result of the discussion, John the Baptist's disciples probably learn at that point what we learn in chapter 4, verse 1. If you want to do a little preview of next week, it says there that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more people than John and his disciples were baptizing. Okay? Starting to sound like a race, isn't it? A little bit of a competition here. Whatever the motivation, whether it was pride or jealousy, or even a questioning of their own decisions to continue to follow Jesus, or to continue to follow John, excuse me. John's disciples bring this information to John. It's recorded here as a statement, but there's clearly the desire for some sort of explanation being expressed here. This is the only time, by the way, in John's gospel that anyone other than Jesus is referred to as rabbi, and it's John the Baptist, this 
wild-looking guy who spent his time in the desert and was very unconventional. Kind of interesting. John the Baptist's disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, speaking about Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Reading, re, reading between the lines, we hear, why isn't everyone coming to you anymore? Are we in competition with Jesus? What are you going to do to regain your own popularity? And I think John's disciples should be commended for their loyalty to John, no matter how misplaced it might have been. This observation on part of the, the part of John's disciples is the springboard for the rest of the chapter, which has been labeled by some as John's last testimony. And it is, at least in the Gospel of John. Verses 27 through 36 speak volumes about the character and integrity of John the Baptist. Rather than desiring any glory or popularity for himself, he wanted the attention to be focused properly on Jesus. And good for him. Okay, and Everything we read from here out, this is a, a wonderful passage as a testimony to both who John is as well as to who Jesus is is. Okay? John's first statement here gives the basis for everything that follows. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And when you stop and look at that and look at the context and start thinking about everything that's happened here, I don't know if it, if it occurs to you like this or not, but it occurs to me. The beauty of that statement is that John applies it both to himself and to Jesus at the same time. Again, the statement was, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And, you know, when I first read this, my temptation was to go either or. Well, is he talking about Jesus or is he talking about himself? And as I look at the rest of the chapter, I conclude he's talking about both of them. The rest of the chapter is the expansion of that statement concerning first John himself and then concerning Jesus. In making that statement, John recognizes that God is in control and that it is futile for man to seek that which is not in God's will. Oh, it doesn't mean that man won't sometimes temporarily succeed when they seek things that are apart from God's will. They may think that they have gotten what they want for a time, but if it is not what God wants for them, it will not last and it will not end well. And so... What John's statement is here, that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. He's talking about the big picture, the ultimate picture, the way it all plays out. So John first expands that statement as it concerns himself. He reminds his disciples that they heard him say that he is not the Christ. John has been absolutely consistent in how he presented himself. Always he pointed his listeners to the one coming after him, and that's Jesus. John saw his own God-given purpose as being the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. What John had received was the role of forerunner. John's disciples wanted more for him. Possibly they wanted more for themselves. But John was content. And that's a huge word. I don't know if you stop to think about the word content very often. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 4 where he's sitting in prison and uh, he's, he's telling the, the Christians in, in Philippi, I'm glad that you have again renewed your concern for me. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatsoever circumstances I am. I can make do with not very much. I can get by when I've got plenty. 
I, I can, and that's the context in which we find the statement that is quoted so often, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the, the, the context of Paul's statement about that, and it's about contentment. Contentment is a good thing. John was content to fulfill the calling of God, even though it meant promoting Jesus instead of promoting himself. And he, he, John goes on to use an analogy that his disciples would understand. And I think we understand it too. At a wedding, the bridegroom has the honor and the right to be joined in matrimony to his bride. No one else at the wedding has that right. No one else can say, you know, not so fast there, Bob. I think it, I, I'm going to stand there. No, it doesn't work that way, does it? Now, the friend of the bridegroom, we would call him the best man, he rejoices for the bridegroom and the bride. The best man is not jealous of the bridegroom, nor does the best man think that the bride should be his. John the Baptist told his disciples that his joy had been made full by the arrival and popularity of Jesus. And John shows tremendous humility here. That's one of those things we don't always get an accurate picture of. What is real humility? We, we get the false idea of humility is somehow you make yourself out to be less than you really are. Thinking less of yourself than you should. I mean, you know, trying to downplay who you are. No, that's not real humility. Real humility is seeing yourself the way that God sees you. And John here has true humility. He has the same view and assessment of himself that God has sees what his position is, what his place is. He's fulfilling it, and he's content with that. He accepted his God-given place joyfully. And then John says something in verse 30 that I think ought to be the theme, the goal, the expectation of every Christian. And it is from this statement that I took the title of today's message. If you've been sitting there looking at that and going, oh, where did that come from? Now you know. It's from verse 30. This is what it's all about here this morning. About Jesus and himself. John said, He, Jesus, must increase, but I, John, or you can put your own name in there, must decrease. Now think of all the implications of that statement. John meant it in the sense of prominence in their respective ministries. Here's Jesus. He's finally showed up. He was baptized by John the Baptist and entered into his ministry. And now it's his time. And so he's gaining disciples and he's teaching people and people are coming to him. And that's as it should be, according to John. And he's gaining popularity. He must increase. Right? Jesus, the Messiah, had now come. John had fulfilled his role of forerunner. He prepared the way for the Messiah. And now John's ministry would come to an end while Jesus' ministry would grow and increase. Well, that's great. Good job, John. You got, you got the point. Way to go, John the Baptist. But my question is, what about you? What about you? How might you apply to your own life this statement made by John? How many different ways are there for you to say about Jesus and yourself, He must increase, but I must decrease? You might say, I need to be more like Jesus in my character. Or you might say, I need to be more like Jesus in my integrity. 
Or maybe this statement applies to you. I need to be more like Jesus in my love for others. Or how about, I need to be more like Jesus in desiring God's will to be done in my life instead of my own will. He must, and if you underline things in your Bible, I would underline that word. He must increase, and I must decrease. If you're a Christian, I hope that you will take that statement and make it your own. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I must decrease. He must increase in my life. There's a song that I really like. It's called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. The first part of the song has these words. It's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you. For your glory and your fame. It's not about me. As if you should do things my way. You alone are God and I surrender to your ways. And I'd ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, can we make that our own prayer and desire today? Verse 31. He who comes from above, John continues as he's speaking about Jesus now, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The statement John the Baptist made about a man receiving nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven applies to Jesus as well. John's disciples were concerned that Jesus was increasing in popularity and seemingly replacing John the Baptist. But John is speaking of Jesus when he says... He who comes from heaven is above all. There is no authority higher than the authority of Jesus. There is no wisdom wiser than the wisdom of Jesus. There is no power stronger than the power of Jesus. And there is no love greater than the love of Jesus. He who comes from heaven is above all. John the Baptist's disciples wanted to promote John. John the Baptist wanted to promote Jesus. In chapter 1, you think about the nature of Jesus' testimony here that John ascribes to him. In chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we read this about Jesus. It said, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Earlier in chapter 3, we heard Jesus tell Nicodemus, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now John the Baptist says, what he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. And here's the irony of what John has already said. In spite of the statement John made that he, Jesus, must increase, it is also true that many will not accept his testimony anyway. Jesus, speaking from personal knowledge and speaking from personal experience, teaches about heaven. He teaches about why he is the only means of getting to heaven, but people reject him anyway. Last week I posed the question, do you think that any of the Israelites who had been bitten by poisonous snakes in the wilderness refused to lift up their eyes and look at the bronze serpent that Moses had out there so they could be healed? All they had to do was look at the bronze serpent and they would be healed. And the more I think about it, the more I think there probably were at least some who said, that's crazy and I'm not doing it. Looking at the bronze serpent, why would I do that? And then they died. Now I can't prove that. I can't prove that there were some that didn't look when they had the opportunity to look and that they died as a result. But I know how people are and so do you. For some reason, people who need help sometimes refuse the help they're offered even if it means they'll continue to suffer. A counselor tells his client, if you will make these changes, you can really improve your situation. But even though the client says he wants to change, he keeps doing what he's always done. Or a doctor tells her patient, take these pills according to this schedule until they're all gone to clear up your infection. But the patient stops taking the medication and the problem persists. It happens. People are like that. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to earth and declares, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And what happens? People reject him. And then they die forever. And that's what verses 35 and 36 are all about. The Father gives all things into the Son's hand. Just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Based on that truth, John the Baptist, in his final words in John's Gospel, said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Some people reject Jesus, and then they die forever. You know, some people have a problem with Christianity because Christianity claims to be exclusive. Christianity says that being a Christian is the only way to be saved and go to heaven. Some Christians have even had a problem with that aspect of Christianity. They are unwilling to accept that there are conditions to be met in order to receive salvation, and they're so unwilling to, uh, to accept that that they start promoting false doctrines like universalism, which is the belief that everyone gets to heaven no matter what. Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of scurvy? You'll be thankful I don't have pictures for this, too. Have you ever heard of scurvy? Okay. I'm sure some of you know what that is. Others of you may not have heard of that. That's fine. Scurvy is a disease that may have been first recorded or observed around uh, 3,500 years ago, perhaps more, right? Long time. And it really came to prominence, at least as far as our awareness of it today is, in the 15th and 16th centuries, along with the tremendous increase in ocean travel and exploration. 
Now, scurvy is a terrible disease that usually proves fatal if left untreated. But I've got good news. If you should ever contract scurvy, and I confess that the likelihood of that is vanishingly small, but if you should ever contract scurvy, there is only one treatment for it. Only one. Just one. And if you do not accept that one treatment, you will almost certainly die. Okay? So, how many, have, how, how many people who have scurvy, when faced with that reality, will refuse the treatment and insist on some other solution? Now, you know, because there's only one. Now, I would like to think that no one would ever do that. No one would ever refuse the treatment, especially since it's so simple. The treatment for scurvy, vitamin C, right? Eat an orange, take a pill, right? That's all there is. It's vitamin C. All you have to do to be saved from scurvy is to take some vitamin C. Just a little historical note. Uh, if you're into any of this kind of stuff, you ever heard of British people being called limeys? Yeah, this is why. Because on the ships, they figured it out finally, that if they would carry a supply of limes on the ship and everybody had a daily ration and they would eat a lime or part of a lime or whatever it was that they had, that then they would be safe from scurvy. It was the British that figured that out and carried it on their ships. So they got to be known as limeys, right? All you have to do to be saved from scurvy is to take some vitamin C. But that's the only treatment for scurvy that there is. It's exclusive. And no one... As far as I know, no one complains about that kind of exclusive solution to a problem. Scurvy, vitamin C, no problem. Give me that line, give me that orange, I'm good. But when Jesus says that he is the only way for anyone to come to the Father, that he is the only way to inherit eternal life, that his is the only name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, well then... Then people take exception to that because it's so exclusive. So exclusive. And they want to find another way. Well, make no mistake, it is exclusive. Absolutely. In John chapter 3 that we studied last week, verses 17 and 18, Jesus told Nicodemus, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. But here's the exclusive part. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is exclusive, but it is also fact. John the Baptist put it this way in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The title of the message is, He Must Increase. But in order for Jesus to increase in your life, you must first have Him in your life. Because without Him, you won't have any life at all. John the Baptist's disciples struggled with what role Jesus was supposed to fulfill in their existence. They had tasted popularity when the people flocked to John, and now that popularity was diminishing. Their focus was on themselves, or at least on John the Baptist. But John told them that they needed to focus on Jesus. Even more than that, John gave his disciples a wonderful example of humility 
when he said about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. That was true for John the Baptist. And it's true for each one of us here. No matter how much Jesus is working in your life right now, and I pray that he is, but no matter how much Jesus is working in your life right now, there is room for him to increase in terms of how his presence in you is changing you. He needs to increase in your life, and he needs to increase in my life too. And finally, he's the only way that we have been given that leads to forgiveness, eternal life, and heaven. Just like there's only one cure for scurvy, there's only one cure for sin, and that's Jesus. There's no other way. And so my question, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I've addressed the Christians here pretty, pretty heavily and, and given you some things that I think affect you and involve you based on John the Baptist's final testimony here about Jesus. But what about if you're not a Christian here this morning? Are you willing to accept that exclusive offer of salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ? Are you ready to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and as your Savior? Would you repent of your sin and commit to heading in the right direction from now on? It's not my invitation, it's His. Come, confess your faith in Him. Be baptized into Him for the forgiveness of your sin, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And make the commitment to allow Jesus to increase in your life every day from now on. More of Him, less of you.